So last week, we were studying through this passage in 2 Timothy, and what we were really focusing on was that couplet. There were three of them. If we die, we know we're going to be raised again because Christ is raised. If we uh, suffer persecution, we know that the Lord is faithful to reward us. If we deny the Lord, then he will deny us of rewards in heaven. We talked about how that cannot mean he denies eternal life to the believer because of the last couplet that says, if we believe not, he abideth faithful, and he cannot deny himself. These are all encouragements for, as it was described in verse 2, faithful believers. Now you're here tonight. Only you can answer the question as to whether you are a faithful believer or not. It's not necessarily my job to call you that, to bestow it upon you. That's between you and the Lord. But the instructions that are given here are important for believers that want to grow spiritually. And before Paul gives any kind of warning in this section, he teaches based off of truth. And we can come to some conclusions based off of what he says. The first thing is, the things in verse 14, or excuse me, the things in verses 11, 12, and 13 are supposed to help us understand verses 14 through 18. And we're going to actually have an example of some people that did some things poorly and led to really bad results as a, as, as a result of their decisions. But look in verse 14. There are three words here I want you to focus on primarily. It says, of these things... The these things are the things that are mentioned in verses 11 through 13. We can summarize from those couplets that we studied three doctrines that we as believers are supposed to hold on to and be reminded of as we go forward in our growth. Here are those four doctrines. The first one is the child of God is eternally secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's, it's important that we distinguish why we are eternally secured because in a few moments we're going to look at some people that denied the resurrection, taught a denial of that resurrection after they had already believed it, they changed their mind about it, they taught that to other people and it led to more and more people apostatizing from the faith. We are going to grow spiritually, we're going to remain in a position of blessing from the Lord if we keep in mind that we are eternally secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is doctrine of eternal security. The second thing is, the child of God will not suffer persecution in vain. That's the doctrine of earned rewards. I don't know how many of you have listened to Kaylee Schmidt's interview. She did an interview with Bible Line about a month ago now, maybe, maybe two months now. Time really does fly. But one of the things she said in the interview, she said it in passing, but it really stuck with me. She said, I never understood that I would be rewarded for my faithfulness until I started coming to Calvary. Now that was, that was interesting because the way that I grew up, I understood that I'm going to stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. I understood 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the passage in Romans where it says I'm going to have to give an account. I, I, I understand that the things that I choose to do in this life with my new nature, I'm going to be rewarded for those things and the profitless things are going to burn up. And it kind of blew my mind that there was somebody who, you know, I see Kaylee every week. She's faithful to play the piano, but we're, and we're the same age too, that she has gone through life not understanding that what she does actually matters. And then she comes here to Calvary, and if you know her story, 
She put in the wrong address. She was going to go to a different Calvary. Google put in this Calvary. She came in, didn't pay any attention to the sign or anything. It was the first time she had ever come to that Calvary church. She walked in here, and she didn't realize until later that was the wrong place, but it was the right place. Amen? How interesting, you know? But through that, as she continued to to come here and understand the Word as it's properly supposed to be taught, she understood, man, the things that I choose to do for the Lord, He's going to reward me for them. I do them out of the motivation of love, but knowing He wants to reward me. That's an important thing. That will keep you on the good road. I don't mean on the good road of salvation, but on the good road of profitability, of being someone who's faithful with this small amount of time that you have. And I say small because in comparison to eternity, folks, this time that you have is very, very short, and it's very, very unique. You'll never have an opportunity like this again. So that doctrine of earned rewards, the third doctrine to keep us going is the child of God will be denied rewards for unfaithfulness. This is called the doctrine of lost rewards. Now, this is not to be conflated to you can lose what you've already earned, because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says you lay up treasures in heaven where thieves cannot steal, where things cannot be taken. But you can run a very high opportunity cost by living for yourself in this world. Let's say the Lord gives you 80 years, and you, got, you trusted Christ in your 20s. You serve Him for 60-odd years. You come to the end of your life, and you, you, you have a change of mind. You're, you're riddled with guilt because you lived your life for yourself. You die, or you get raptured. You stand before the Lord. You'll have very little to give back to Him. I don't know how that's going to feel. I, I, I really don't. I know that there's doctrines that say things like shame and regret, and I understand that. But I can just imagine now if I could see Jesus and understand the significance of what I'm looking at, I don't know how with a good state of mind I could deny serving him. I just don't know how that could happen, unless I was so deceived that I lifted myself and put myself in his spot. Don't wait until the end of your life to get things together. Start now. Don't assume that you have all this time to serve the Lord. Do what you can today. You go to bed, you wake up, and you commit the next day to the Lord, just step by step. But understand if there's an opportunity cost. And that's what is said when it says, if we deny him, he will deny us. Then the fourth doctrine is eternal security again, but from a different perspective. The, the child of God is the first of these three. The child of God is eternally secured in the resurrection. The child of God will not suffer persecution in vain. The child of God will be denied rewards for unfaithfulness. The fourth doctrine is God will never deny ownership of his children. I want you to see that in verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now you're bought with a price, that price being the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You have the indwelling seal of the Holy Spirit. This body that you have is not your own anymore. That's a very challenging doctrine in our society today. You might even be coming in here thinking, well, this is my life, 
so I get to choose what to do with it. If you're a saved individual, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus has been applied to your account and you are no longer your own. You're going to be held accountable with how you use your body and how you use this life and time that you have. But God will never deny his children. So the first doctrine there is eternal security based on the resurrection. The last doctrine there is eternal security based on the faithfulness of God. He's not going to deny you. There's a lot of teaching out there that says if you deny God, if you abandon the faith, if you reject what you have once believed, that God will also reject you. A lot of free will Baptists believe that. Armenians believe that, that you can choose to be saved and you can choose to be unsaved. What God has done in the justification of the believer cannot be undone. It's, it's, it is the definition of permanent. It's eternal. So we're to remember these things, secured by the resurrection. We can earn rewards. We can lose out on opportunity for rewards and that God is faithful. That is what verse 14 is going to be transitioning into. Of these things... Those things, you keep those in mind. And then here's the command to Timothy. Look what it says. Timothy, of these things, put them in remembrance. How do you come to remember something? Repetition, okay? You watch a sport long enough, and all. let's say you're just listening to a sport on the radio. At some point, you're going to come to understand certain terms, certain situations, how a run is scored, whatever it may be. You'll come to a understanding of that. You start watching that sport and committing the terminology by writing it down and memorizing it, it's going to become ingrained in your brain. So you'll get to the point 10 years later, you've been watching a sport for 10 years and you know exactly what's going on. You don't even have to listen with the volume on. You can know just by looking at what's going on. Remembrance is gained by repetition. If, we are, if, if Timothy is instructed to keep the layman, the members of the church, in remembrance of those things. What can you and I glean from that? Know the word. Put it on repeat. And I'm not just talking about you let it play in the background. Actively study it over and over and over again. Your goal is not to read the Bible this year and then put it on the shelf and say, I read the Bible. You study these things over and over and over again. Go back into that verse. Charging them before the Lord. Now this is interesting. Timothy's instruction to put these things in remembrance of the people in his ministry, of those in the body of Christ, why, why does he charge them before the Lord? Because that's who they're going to stand in front of. There's a little bit of a pride, a little bit of a complex with some pastors where they think the people are accountable to them. That ain't how that works. On certain levels, with church discipline, of course, there are things where the pastor... And the person uh, who is in, in church is accountable to the pastor when being pressed on sin in a counseling session for honesty. But you're not going to go uh, before heaven and stand before Jesus Christ and Jesse Martinez. That's not how that's going to work. And you have probably seen this. Huge ministries, they're extremely successful. Then the pastor dies or is found in a scandal and everybody's gone. I'm charging you to do these things not so you can make me happy, but because you're going to stand before the Lord. And as an under-shepherd here, not the shepherd, that's Jesus, but as the under-shepherd here, it's my responsibility to teach you and to teach with a sober mind and with gravity, 
you're going to stand before the Lord. Don't waste this opportunity. I'm supposed to be a model of that faithfulness. Can you imagine if I was like, don't, don't uh, abuse your body. You know, glug, 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 whatever it may be. Don't do that. But don't look at me. Well, we saw this hypocrisy recently with all the stuff that was going on with COVID and all that. It was like rules for thee, but not for me. That's not how Christianity is supposed to work. I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the things that I say and do just like you are. And I want to prepare you for success. Charge those things before the Lord. Now look at this. This is interesting. The next part of verse 14 says, that they strive not about words to no profit. This is a lot of Christianity today. A lot of jawjacking. Yet that, 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 that. We could do it right now. I could get out of the slide. I could go to YouTube. And I could pull up commentary after commentary after verbal commentary on something. Everyone's got something to say about a Bible verse. Everybody's got something to bring against somebody else. It's a part of what our ministry does, but we do it with the intention of teaching clear doctrine, not bringing down men. I just, we just recorded this past week, and there were some guys that I told the audience, I said, we just prayed for this man to come to faith in Christ. The idea is not to destroy the man, but to test the doctrine. If it stands against the word of God, then we condemn it. If it's in line with the word of God, then the word of God be praised. But there's a temptation for man to do all the talking and no walking. That's a real temptation. And that is what the believer is warned against here. Timothy is instructed so that as they keep these things in remembrance, they strive not about words to no profit. They're not debating for the sake of debating. I listened to a Calvinist debate some free will Baptists, and they weren't free will in that you could lose your salvation. They were free will in that they believed in free will. And this Calvinist guy, he was so irate. He screamed the word, wow. And it was so loud that it, 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 it rang in the speakers and obviously frightened those in the audience. And he, re, he came to his senses and realized, slow it down, brother. We're, no one's running out the door. You're not being held at gunpoint. But people love to strive over words. I see it when I, when I am sharing the gospel with people. Not as often now because the people I'm sharing the gospel with, they're not teenagers like back then. But boy, everybody wants to go on a forum and start sharing the clear gospel. You're going to see a lot of striving. I remember making a, an account for an apologetics class that I had. It's part of my homework. Made an account, went in there, shared the gospel. In 30 seconds, I had three pages worth of comments. I'm like, that's not possible. You can't type 8,000 words in 30 seconds. I did a little response, posted it again in 10 seconds, another thousand something words. And I'm coming to say, these people have this in a Word document. They're just ready to bloop, bloop. They just copy and paste, copy and paste. And you find you're chasing nobody. You know what you're doing? You're satisfying the devil. You're just running around. Things aren't, you're not really doing anything. Don't be a Christian like that. Instead, close the mouth and engage the actions. Be a walker, not just a talker. Now, this is, this is going to be interesting, this next part here. But to the subverting of the hearers. Now, the word there, but, is in italics, so it's not very clear as to what that word may have been. But let me tell you what word is not in italics, subverting. 
You know what that word is in the Greek? I'm going to pronounce it out for you. Please pray for your brother in Christ. You ready? Catastrophe. Isn't that interesting? But to the catastrophic result of what? The hearers. I kid you not. I looked at that and I said, wow. I have never seen that Greek word used. It's only used twice in the Scripture. The other place it's kind of implied, it's in Jude. But here you're like to the subverting of the hearers. Well, subverting, what is that? that doesn't sound that bad. Catastrophe sounds real bad. What does this say? That the striving for words, which are of no profit, are catastrophic to the ones who listen. Boy, does that not divine our culture today? Podcasts, drama stuff, all that in the Christian community, it just destroys people's faith. It's catastrophic. If I told you something catastrophic happened to the church, do I have your attention or are you just you know, going to come back to that later? No, no. If something catastrophic happened, that is, by definition, a major event. To the catastrophe, better known in the English language as catastrophe. Understand this. Words without profit, the Bible says, are catastrophic to faithful believers' growth. You want, to, you, you want to shipwreck your faith? Get busy in arguing. Become so spiritually wise that you don't even remember how to walk spiritually. It's a real danger. This is why personally, I don't get involved in comments and stuff. Not to say that Trent's subverting his faith. That's not to say that. But he even knows there's some people, you just got to let that, let that guy go. He's on his own thing. You teach the truth, you put it in there, they deny it once, they deny it twice. You, are, you have to make a decision. I'm not going to stand before God and be a failure because that person didn't trust Christ. But there are people out there who want to keep you busy about doing nothing. And they may even be in the church. They may even be in the body of Christ. Believers that are worried more about being right than about being right with God. That's a form of pride, and it's very sneaky. And a lot of people don't see it on themselves, but it's like a giant, it's like a giant mass on the face. It's like, whoa, something's going on there. Understand this transitional verse into the verse that you already know. 2 Timothy 2.15, what does this say? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly abiding, uh, excuse me, dividing the word of truth. A-W-A-N-A. That's where we get Awana from. Some of you have gone, Awana, that's a weird name. Approved workmen are not ashamed. That's what that means. And what's the focus on Awana? Scripture. You go open an Awana book, there's memory verses, there's biblical interpretation, biblical application, all based off of this verse. Now this command is to Timothy, but it also profits us. Let's break this down. Study to show thyself approved unto God. What's the purpose of our study? To be approved unto God. Not to be raised by men. Not to be raised to the degree of, this is the man. What, is, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees who pray in public for the, uh, the praise of men? What does he say to them? You have your reward. You got it. 
Timothy was not to rest on what was communicated to him by somebody else. He was to study God's word and to know it. The approval is from God, not men. I'm going to read this to you here. Sometimes men condemn Bible doctrines because it does not line up with the oral traditions in their study guides and commentaries. It is wise to pray for wisdom and discernment when studying the word, but know that there will be some who come against you. Make sure before you condemn them, and I I do this in my own practice, make sure you understand their point thoroughly. If I can't understand somebody's response, I don't write an email, or excuse me, if I can't understand someone's premise, I don't write a response back to them. I ask, can you clarify that? I've been in telephone arguments with people where I'm the calm one, and I say, what do you mean when you say blah, blah, blah? And most of the time I get a lot of, uh, the, the, uh, well, because they're just repeating what they heard. Now I know this is my opportunity to come into that conversation with love and try to edify that person. If they're not saved, lead them to Christ. If they are saved and they're in some sort of false doctrine, expose the doctrine for what it is. That's not me coming up there with the ax going, I got them. And just the victor. He won the argument. And this other believer is just, what a loser. That's not how the body of Christ works. Can you imagine if you did that with one of your fingers that was hurting in the morning? I'm better now because I don't have an index finger. That's what we do when we cut against the body of Christ. We got to edify one another. But we are approved unto to man. Or excuse me, we're approved unto God. If it lines up, if this doctrine lines up with the word of God, it's accepted. Praise be to God. If it fails to be biblically proven, then you can write it off as a false doctrine and you continue in the truth. You don't go around now and start hammering just that false doctrine. You continue to teach the truth. You know how much work would be done in this ministry if I only focused on false doctrines? We're going line by line, you know, we're building on these things. There's a time to address those things. The next statement, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The believer who studies the word of God will have his approval as someone who knows the word. That doesn't mean they're approved unto salvation. You're profitable now. You're that trusty tool that gets the job done. I can't imagine if the hammer, the only hammer I had was held together with duct tape and, and, and prayer. You know? Here I go, I'm going to hammer into the wall. I don't know if it's going to fall off and hit my wrist. I don't know if the head of the hammer is going to go right through the wall, but here we go. <laughs> it's not going to be good. The believer will be rewarded for his study and not ashamed by his incorrect interpretation or misapplication of the word. Now this next phrase is very important. This is where we'll end the night. Rightly dividing the word of truth. I remember the first Wednesday night I came here, Dr. Lindstrom was somewhere in the Old Testament and he quoted this verse. And he was talking about a prophecy and it was very obscure. And here I am like, never, I've never heard Bible study like this before. I'm going, I don't have enough fingers to hold places, you know? But I remember him saying this and talking about there is a wrong way to divide the word. And immediately I thought, am I dividing the word incorrectly? All that has been said in this verse hinges on this section. A believer can study God's word, but do so incorrectly. This this would be the opposite of Paul's command to rightly divide the word. Rightly dividing the word takes time because one must read and study the whole Bible. Now, don't be overwhelmed by that. 
Don't go, you know what, I've avoided Leviticus for all this time, and, and that's the real downfall of my Christian life. No, no. But understand, this takes time. You need to be patient. But I'm going to give you, very quickly, I know we're over time, so when you hear, I'm going to give you 10 things, you're going to be like, whoa. But they're going to be quick. These are 10 things that I've learned about studying the Bible. And I believe it's helped me rightly divide. Number one, don't let a difficult passage change the interpretation of a clear passage. If a verse says something clearly, let it say something clearly. Amen? Don't take something that is obscure or difficult and try to change something that's already easily understood. Number two, don't misapply a passage to the wrong audience, i.e., know who is being addressed. When you read the book of Isaiah, and you see in chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, come now, let us reason together. Understand that this is God, through the prophet Isaiah, calling out to his people in Israel. Understand that as you go forward and read the rest of it. Don't apply that to something different. Prosperity gospel gets this wrong. They look at the promises to Israel and say, if you, Gentile, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll get all these things, and it's a guarantee. And it shipwrecks people's faith because they see God not doing what he said he would do. When in, in all actuality, it was a preacher saying something he ought not say. That's really damaging. Number three, know the difference between interpretation and application. You've heard me say this time and time again. There is one interpretation to a passage. There can be multiple applications, but there's only one interpretation. And the application has to line up with what was originally said. Number four, know the difference between literal language and figurative language. When Jesus says the, uh, Solomon is clothed like the lilies of the field, does that mean that Solomon wore flowers? No, no. There, there's language that's literal and language that's figurative. Be able to see the difference. Number five, identify key words, themes, and common phrases in a book. So when you study Galatians, for example, you see thing like, things like the law, circumcision, things like that. Understand how do those words apply to the theme of the book? Is there a statement in the first chapter that is carried out throughout the book, maybe broken out into different sections? Look for those things. You're going to find you can't just do good Bible study with just the Bible. You're going to need a, a very sharp pencil and a clear piece of paper, maybe multiple pieces. Number six, identify verbs and how they are used. Number seven, know the subject of a verse and trace it through a passage. Mark when it changes. This is one of my favorite things to do. I'll start in 1-1, meaning I'll go to Galatians 1-1, and I'll see, is there any person, a, a noun or something that is used as a subject in a first sentence that is carried out? Colossians is a great example. Colossians 1-1 through 9 is all a long prayer from Paul for people who are saved. And people use Colossians 1-7, 8, and 9 to prove some type of works-based salvation. It's like, he's talking to people who are already saved. He's praying that they would continue in these things. Know the subject of a verse or passage. Keep that subject in mind and note when the passage moves to another subject. Number eight, approach your study of a difficult passage with prayer. Number nine, approach your study of easy passages with prayer. Number 10, approach everything with prayer. 
Those last three are so important. If you go in here saying, I'm going to prove eternal security correct, you're making a mistake. If you go in here and say, I'm going to prove the sovereignty of God uh, eliminates the free will of man, you're going to go in with glasses like this that will show you everything you want to see. You'll see everything you want to see. But if you go in, speaking here, I need these, you know what I'm saying? But for the illustration, if you go in and say, Lord, I'm putting my views aside, what do you have for me? And you study this word with humility, I guarantee you, you will get proper doctrine. You'll get it. Now, there's many more things that you could do when you rightly divide the word. But you approach with humility and with prayer and with the intent of a student. What's the difference between a student and the teacher? One is there to learn. The other is there to teach. How many of you have had students that want to suddenly become teachers? Those are fun people, right? No, they're not, especially for teachers. Thank goodness I haven't had that, but boy, I've seen it. You see it in these conservative rallies where you know people want to all of a sudden educate the guest for hours upon hours and hours. It's like, no, no, you're in the role of a questioner. I'm in the role of the lecturer. Don't confuse the two. The Word of God is the teacher. You are the student. You humbly approach the bench and you say, what, what will you have for me? And then you study. And if something comes up and you're like, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Put it aside for some time. This is how I learned the guitar. I would try to chord a G for what seemed like hours. And then I was like, I don't need the G chord. You do. But I just gave up. The next day, I came back and it was a little easier. And then I would just keep going until exhaustion. You know, I'm not saying this is the best way to learn guitar. But in about a week and a half, I had built some muscle memory and I knew where my fingers were supposed to go for the G chord. And everything was great. Until I had to move to the C chord. And then I had to do it all over again. Studying the Word of God can be similar, but in all of that effort, you're only going to tire yourself out. Go in and just trust the Lord. He wants you to know these things. God's not up there going, <laughs> I'm going to get him off on this path and then get him off on this path. What a loser. That's not what he's doing. You know, you are his child. He loves you. He wants to use you to reach more people for the family of God. No one understand that. God's not up there playing games and making life hard for you for the sake of making it hard. All right, you can close your Bibles. I pray this has been profitable for you. I'd like to share with you the most important news in all the world. This hand to represent you and me. This block of sin to represent sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of God's glory. What's that glory? Perfection, eternal perfection. We don't have it. We, we are all sinners. We all for, fall short of that perfection. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. God loves us very much. He offered a payment for this sin, but man in his pride and arrogance thinks his good works are equal to the payment that God made. Our good works are always filthy, and they fall short. There's no amount of starting, stopping, turning, committing that we could do to pay for this sin. Somebody has to die for it. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. This is God's provision for us. Jesus went to the cross of Calvary. He took all that sin that we could never pay, and he paid for it 
in his own body by shedding his blood. He was buried and he rose again three days later. And the Bible says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now that doesn't mean you'll skip out on physical death. We all have sinful bodies. We're going to die at one point. But you get to skip out on spiritual death, the separation from God, because you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His shed blood to pay for your sin, you now have the righteousness of God forever put to your account. That makes you eternally secured, and you'll never go to hell. Why? There's no sin to send you there. But I still sin. Yeah, and that's not good, but Jesus paid for that sin. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're listening on the internet tonight, I pray that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that He is the Son of God, that the blood that He shed was precious and it was for your sin. His burial and resurrection guarantees your eternal life. Would you put your trust in Him? Don't delay. Don't wait. Trust in Him now. Those in the audience, the invitation is open to you as well. I know all of you personally... And I pray that you've come to faith in Christ. I pray that this teaching tonight is edifying. Please be back next week. It's not a shameless plug, but next week we get to see some real-world consequences from subverting the hearers and how we can avoid those things. Father, thank you for this study tonight. Bring us back here safely for the ministries this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.